Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Ron Klain, the White House Chief of Staff. He's one of the most powerful people in America. He determines what President Biden gets done and who is in the room when it happens. And let me be clear, the Biden administration wants to get everything done. In the past five months, they've tried to tackle infrastructure, voting rights, systemic racism, climate change, and much more. But with limited political capital and limited time, the pressing question is whether they'll actually succeed. Thanks for being here, Ron. Thanks for having me, Kara. You've been in the White House for a while now, and some people called you the prime minister to me. I don't know if you accept that title. You also manage a high-octane White House. So I'd love to understand what kind of chief of staff you think you've been and how you're thinking about it. Well, you know, I think of it as a person who is the chief of staff, which is I'm a staff person, not the prime minister or anything like that. And my goal is really to try to help get the staff organized and moving in a direction where we're helping the president be effective. Our goal is to make him the best president he can be and to help him deliver on his agenda for the American people. He came into office, he said, there are four crises we need to solve. COVID, the economy, systemic racism, and climate change. And every day I'm making sure that our team is putting before him the decisions he needs to make, the steps he needs to take to tackle those four challenges. Who do you compare yourself to if you had to pick a chief of staff or a management style? Well, you know, I am the White House chief of staff who has worked for more White House chiefs of staff than any other chief of staff. And so I have the benefit of having worked for nine of the people who've done this job. And so I draw something from all of them. I think, you know, what I try to draw from Dennis McDonough, who I work with in the Obama administration, is just to making sure that those super talented people around the table get their voices heard. Uh, I try to draw from work with Leon Panetta, uh, the importance of congressional relations at the center of a lot of what we do. You know, I draw from John Podesta, a real focus on policy and some of the policy issues that we need to drive in this job. And I can go on down the line for all the chiefs of staff I work with and worked under. So, but, fu- you know, fundamentally, the White House reflects Joe Biden, not the staff, not Ron Klain, not any of our people. It reflects his priorities, his agenda. And as I said, my job is really just to make sure that we're driving that agenda every day. You know, interestingly, you may have worked for all these people, but a lot of people compare you to James Baker. How would you take that comparison? A much stronger chief of staff, someone who was also sort of called the prime minister in a lot of ways. Well, I, you know, uh, it's an interesting comparison. It's very flattering. I think obviously Secretary Baker did a stunning job as White House chief of staff, but I don't know. You know, again, I really am focused more on the collaborative efforts we have here in the White House and uh, we benefit from having that team uh, approach. So thus far, what do you think you don't do well? What do you think you need to improve as chief of staff if you looked over the past few months that you been running it? Uh, It's hard. It's very hard. I'll say what has also made this experience unique is a combination of these crises and the urgency that creates. And the fact that for the first months we've been here, most of the team has been remote. We still have the majority of the White House staff working remote. We're going to start to bring more and more people on campus in July. That's made it harder to build personal relationships with the folks I don't know, harder to kind of stop someone in the hallway and tell them, you know, nice job and, and whatnot. And I think building that team spirit is definitely a challenge when, like every other workplace in America that's going through remote work, the White House is another place that's dealing with all the strengths and weaknesses of having so much of the team remote. 
So let's talk about some of the uh, things you're working on. Infrastructure obviously is in the news the most this past week. There seems to be a bipartisan deal on a $1.2 trillion infrastructure package over eight years. This, by the way, around a trillion dollars less than the White House originally wanted. The deal also leaves out soft infrastructure like child care. And it won't be funded by higher taxes on corporation, as President Biden proposed. So if passed, will this infrastructure deal actually be a victory? Well, so first of all, if this passed, it would be a huge victory, not just for the president, but for the American people. We have been talking about infrastructure week in Washington for many, many, many years now, almost to the point in time where it's become a a kind of a joke. If we could pass the largest investment in infrastructure since the creation of the interstate highway system, That would create a lot of jobs and it would update our infrastructure system, which is starting to fade compared to other countries that we compete with. That plan also does include a record investment in mass transit, record investment in rail, building 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations across the country to usher in the era of people traveling by electric vehicle, replacement of thousands of buses with electric buses, investments in capping wells that are leaking methane into the atmosphere and other kinds of environmental remediation and mitigation measures. And I should say, a record investment in cleaning up our water system. So look, I think there's a lot in here that would be a victory for the American people, be a victory for our country in terms of our health and well-being, in terms of uh, making the pivot towards a more clean energy economy. And, um, you know, most importantly, also in terms of creating jobs, which is what we set out to do with what we call the American Jobs Plan. So the original proposal was what I was thinking of as a kind of a kitchen sink deal. Everything was in there. It was much more aggressive aiming at climate change and sort of the future, things like electric cars and other things. So I'd love you to get specific of what you think the biggest win here and one loss that you wish was in it right now. I think the biggest win may be the win on the clean water. I think it's always been a longstanding desire of the president to not have our children drink water from lead pipes. You know, I think in our country that's kind of divided between rural and urban America, winning a big investment in mass transit has been very, very difficult. I think that's a critical win here. And I think the overall scope and scale of the thing is a critical win as well. I think there are two big setbacks for us in this package. One, uh, we really wanted clean energy tax credits, and we really wanted a big investment in the caring economy, uh, particularly helping people who need elder care, care for disabled children. Those were two things originally in the American Jobs Plan that we gave up in this compromise. But let me be clear, uh, gave up in this compromise. The president's also made it clear. He's finding very hard to pass a bill. We call it the American Families Plan. I think inside Washington, it's often referred to as reconciliation that would capture some of these things that aren't in this bipartisan infrastructure package. Okay, I want to get to reconciliation in a minute. But on climate change, the omission of the national clean electricity standard was huge, I think. And Yeah, I would put, add, push- add that. I, I mentioned the clean energy tax cuts, also the clean electricity standard, the clean energy standard. It's also something we're going to try to ha- move through Congress in, uh, in other ways. In reconciliation in this case? Yes. Because he has yet to pass the huge climate change legislation that you were talking about because it was one of your four big areas of focus that you mentioned previously. Yes, although we have made, I think, progress in climate with other initiatives. I think that uh, obviously the president brought the leaders of the world together at the end of April and made a new nationally determined contribution of reducing our emissions and then are starting to put in place the pieces we're going to need to get that. Uh, Again, I understand why advocates for climate change, including us, you know, wanted to see things that were in the jobs plan that aren't in this infrastructure plan. But I also think it's important to point out there are some very important investments in this infrastructure plan. 
So let's talk about the accompanying reconciliation bill. Now, uh, President Biden made an off-the-cuff comment that he wouldn't sign without the accompanying reconciliation bill for some of the soft infrastructure that the Democrats wanted. Republicans saw this as a veto threat and got pissed off, and then the president had to walk it back. And you obviously all had a busy weekend working the phones to repair what was effectively a gaffe. What role did you play in fixing it? How did it come together? Well, look, I think the president put out a statement on Saturday that reflects his views and as he made very clear in that statement, he's dedicated to this infrastructure plan. He's dedicated to the reconciliation bill. He's going to move both of them forward through the Congress. I think this has been a, you know, a bit of a Washington kerfuffle. But I think the important thing is what he's doing now, which is he's on the road and uh, is out there making the case for this infrastructure bill. I mean, everyone in Washington wants to talk about kind of the inside game here. I think it's important to persuade the country that we need these investments and to rally support for it. We need to get votes for both these pieces of legislation. That's what the president's busy doing. So t- I, I agree with you on the inside game, but what was your inside game to walking it back? You know, my inside game, my outside game, all my games is to try to help the president achieve his agenda. And I thought the president's statement was very, very helpful in that regard. It certainly is moving us forward. And what I'm focused on right now is trying to make sure We're putting the team on the field to explain to the American people what's in this bill and why they should be supportive of it, why their members of the House and Senate should support it. And so we've got a pretty strong team on the field, and now we've got to try to get this thing done. So what are the chances at this point? What's left? What's the challenge you face right now? Well, look, the challenge we face right now is we still have a lot of drafting to do on the legislation. It's technical, complicated stuff. Uh, And then we have to go get it passed. And I think we will get the votes, but you never know until you have the votes. I've been in this long enough that every important thing I've ever been involved with always goes right down to the finish. And with the American Rescue Plan, which we passed in March, it was one of those things uh, where, where we were really counting the votes down to the very, very end. And I'm sure we'll go through the same thing with the infrastructure plan and the reconciliation bill. But it won't be funded by higher taxes on corporations. Now, you've seen stories recently about how the richest among us don't pay taxes, the very richest and things like that. Was that a setback not to get higher taxes on corporations and the very wealthy? Well, look, I think we're going to continue to fight for tax reform as part of the reconciliation process. The president's made that very clear. We, we had our, some of our tax reform proposals attached to the jobs plan, some attached to the families plan. Now we're going to figure out which of those tax reform proposals can go forward. But yes, Kara, it is important that we fix a tax system which has too much of the burden on middle-class Americans and not enough of the burden where it belongs on corporations that pay no taxes, on wealthy individuals that pay no or little taxes. Uh, We've had some of the most large companies in America pay no taxes at all. As a share of our GDP, companies pay less in taxes than they have at any time since World War II. So the president feels very strongly about addressing that. And that's also something we're pushing through the Congress. All right. So let's talk about a more systemic problem, which is several Democrats are frustrated by your focus on bipartisanship and what you gave up to bring Republicans along. Um, Is this bipartisanship, which is very much touted by President Biden and yourself, the right strategy? What we want to do is get as much done as we can on these key priorities that the president has. And if you can take a piece of legislation and get bipartisan support, that should increase the odds that it passes. I mean, there's just a fundamental math here. We have exactly 50 votes in the U.S. Senate. We have just a handful of more of a majority in the House, a handful. And so if we can draw more support for things, it increases the odds that we get those things done. And look, I, you know, obviously it's not going to be possible on everything. It hasn't been possible on everything so far. But I was pleased that the Competition Act, a bill that used to be called Endless Frontier, passed through the Senate with a large bipartisan vote. Right. But in, in general, it's been 
slow. I think that's probably a fair way to put it. Do you think Republicans have been acting in bad faith around these issues? Or one person asked me, how do you negotiate with people who want you to fail? How do you negotiate with people who want you to fail? Look, I think we have to find areas of common ground where we all want to succeed together. And we tried that with the rescue plan. We could never get there with the rescue plan. We've obviously had some success, at least with some Republicans so far on the infrastructure plan. I hope that continues to grow. If we can get more things done with bipartisan support, we're going to go that way. If we can't get the bipartisan support, we're going to see what we can get done without that bipartisan support. But how do you but, do you know, that? I, that's, our, that's, that's what we're trying to do is just try to deliver on these priorities. I get that. I don't mean to call them talking points, but that's what I'd say if I was doing talking points. How do you actually negotiate with people? Now, it might be harder to stiff arm President Biden. He knows these people very well. He's worked with them for decades than, say, President Obama. But it's happening on many, many important issues. Yeah. How do you negotiate around that? Well, I mean, again, we try again where we can find common ground as we have on the infrastructure bill. That's what we've done. And where we can't, then we have to move forward as we did on the rescue plan. And as I expect, we will have to do on the reconciliation bill. So, you know, it's interesting to me that a lot of what we're putting forward is bipartisan in the sense that it has broad support in the country, support from Republican rank and file voters and citizens, support often from Republican elected officials, Republican governors, Republican mayors. So, you know, we're going to go forth with an agenda that we think has broad support in the country and then just try to pass as much as we can here in the Congress and do the things that we need to do administratively to make those things work. Well, imagine that they're trying not to get along with you. I mean, even though a country may support a lot of things, they supported gay rights for years and it was never passed. This happens almost continually on almost every issue when it comes to power struggles in Washington. But you're also navigating tricky math here because the majority in the Senate, as you said, relies on two conservative Democrats, Senator Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Would you be as focused on bipartisanship without them? I think that the president, I I know you call it a talking point, but I'm just going to keep coming back to it. We want to get things done. And more votes means more things getting done. But when you think about this sort of power sharing arrangement, when you think about who has power right now, is it President Biden doing this, going around the country, trying to gin up support for this? Or is it someone like Senator Manchin who has the ability to block things, essentially? You know, in a 50-50 Senate, uh, every senator has a good amount of power. And the job of a president in that situation is to try to rally those senators in support of his agenda. That's the job of a president when you have more than 50 I was here with President Obama. We had 57, and it was hard to pass our stuff with 57. You would like 57 right now, right? I would. I certainly would. So far, we've been able to pull them together and move our agenda forward, and we're going to have to continue to do that. Do you worry that this infrastructure deal is going to be President Biden's Obamacare? In other words, is this an issue where the administration blows all of its political capital? My view of political capital is the more you do, the more you have. And so I think it was helpful that we did the rescue plan. We're making a lot of progress on beating back the virus because of that rescue plan. Now we're trying to move on to what we call the jobs plan, the families plan, make that growth sustainable in the economy and long term and give people the help they need with key priorities. I think each one of these successes leads to more successes. So speaking of successes, the midterms are coming up, and this is an area that's important to you. I ask this because Obama had two of the worst midterm elections of any president. The Democrats lost 63 House seats in Obama's first midterm and then lost the Senate in the second. We have midterms coming up next year. The House is in play, obviously, and 34 Senate seats will be up for grabs. Are you worried? I think the best way we can do well in 2022 is get things done in 2021. And so you know, my focus as White House Chief of Staff is on delivering on the president's agenda. You know, I think there'll be obviously more of a time and a place for the focus on the politics of 2022. But 
every White House, I think, worries about the midterms. You know, look, I think you look at history. What we know is that when presidents are doing things that are working, when the country's feeling good, uh, tends to favor the party that has the White House. And when it's not, it tends to disfavor the party that controls the White House. So I think the best thing we can do for ourselves politically is the best thing we can do for the country, which is to you know continue to fight the virus, continue to grow the economy. Uh, I think that'll put us in the strongest possible place. All right. Let's talk about President Trump then. Um, he just held a rally in Ohio, his first since January 6th. What power do you think Trump still has in the party and in future elections? How do you look at his political power? Well, he seems to be quite influential in the Republican Party. And we see a steady stream of Republicans traveling down to Mar-a-Lago and, uh, you know, courting his favor and whatnot. I think the best thing we can do in the Biden administration is deliver on our priorities. And that's what we're focused on. I'm going to let Republicans deal with Donald Trump. Look, I do think that he clearly posed a grave threat to democracy in his efforts to refuse to accept the election results and then to lie about the election results, his continued efforts to lie about the election results, spread that lie, spread that disinformation. And then, of course, the uh, violence on January 6th, the insurrection on January 6th. And so I would hope uh, that he would have less and less influence in our country. We're going to see how that plays out. How much attention do you pay him in the White House? How cognizant are you all of what he's doing? I mean, obviously, we're cognizant of him, but, you know, we're focused on doing our jobs and our job does not involve Donald Trump. All right. Do you think he'll run against uh, President Biden in 2024? I guess he's kind of said he's going to do that. If he says he's going to do that, I presume that's what he's going to do. And what about President Biden? Is he going to run in 2024? He said from the start that his presumption is that he's running again. And I mean, again, we're focused on doing the jobs here, but but I presume he will run in 2024. And he, at the time, just so people understand, he'll be 81 years old, which is not young. Um, how do you push back on GOP efforts insinuating that he is not fit? And I'm sure former President Trump will do the same. Well, I think the American people get to see him every day, do the job as president. There's no hiding in the White House. It's a greatest fishbowl on earth. And I think the American people see that he's fit to do the job, that he's doing the job. And, uh, you know, they judge presidents based on their performance. And I think that if President Biden chooses to run for election in 2024, which again, I assume he will, he'll be judged by what kind of job he's doing. And uh, people will see him out on the stump campaigning. They'll see the results of his leadership and they'll make an assessment. One of the things that's interesting to me is where the Democratic Party is going to and Democratic voters shifting towards the center. Eric Adams, lead in the Democratic primary in New York City mayor's race, hints at this. He declared himself the face of a new Democratic Party. Do you agree? Well, I'm I'm not going to. First of all, we'll see how the ultimate vote counting in New York sorts out. I don't want to get ahead of that. Adams' lead is slimming down. He's above uh, Catherine Garcia, but both are moderates. Yeah. But what I'll say is, you know, I think that the coalition that Mr. Adams put together in New York is not dissimilar to the coalition that President Biden put together, a coalition of working class voters, African-American voters overwhelmingly, and voters who want to see progress on core issues. And I think that is the coalition that got Joe Biden the Democratic nomination in 2020, got elected president in November of 2020. So I think it's a familiar coalition. And that's the coalition we continue to uh, see as kind of the center of American politics. And so that's It's not a surprise to me. One issue that does seem to unite Democrats and is critical to any future election is voting rights, obviously. States like Florida and Georgia have seen Republican legislatures passing tighter restrictions on mail-in ballots and more. I know the Justice Department recently sued Georgia over the new law, but what is the White House doing about voting rights in advance of the midterms? 
Well, I think uh, the president's very concerned about these voting rights issues. He's concerned about things that diminish access to the ballot. He's concerned about things that make it harder for people to vote. And obviously, he's concerned about some of these laws that try to affect how votes are tabulated, to move the tabulation of votes from election officials to partisan legislatures and things like that. We've been in talks with particularly Democrats in the Senate as S-1 headed to the Senate floor to try to find a path forward. Uh, I was pleased to see that we got all 50 Democrats united to support moving forward on that. Ultimately, that got filibustered. Uh, We're going to have to find other paths forward, whether that's legislative action, other kinds of action, to try to unite our party and hopefully pull over some Republicans. You know, President Biden always likes to remind people that when he was a senator, the Voting Rights Act was renewed with an overwhelming bipartisan vote. It's a shame that these have become partisanized issues because we should make it easy for people to vote. People should have their voting rights respected. And then, you know, may the best side win. We're going to win some elections. We're going to lose some elections. Yeah. Oh, Ron. Oh, Ron. It's not the way it is. But, you know, you know, I mean, it's that way in other democracies. It should be that way in our democracy. I understand it's not that way, but we're going to, you know, we're going to continue to find a path forward. What's the path forward? Would you support getting rid of the filibuster? Well, the president has talked about this time and time again. You know, he's made it very clear that he respects the Senate's prerogatives, but he's also said that there could be a time to change that. I'm not here to talk about that today in terms of whether or not that's going to move. So, you know, our goal is to move forward on voting rights. What about executive order of some sort? Well, I mean, I think that if that were possible, I think that'd be something we'd consider. I think right now, I think the most important thing coming out of the executive branch is the independent action, not at our direction or whatever, but the independent action of the Justice Department vindicating voting rights. The attorney general announced a lawsuit, as you said, against the new state statute in Georgia. He said they're looking at other states. And so I think that's probably the most important thing the executive branch of government can do. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Transportation Secretary Mayor Pete, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Ron Klain after the break. Coming up on July 4th, President Biden announced the big target here that 70 percent of adult Americans would have at least one shot by Independence Day. The White House admitted that you're going to come up short. But tell me how you look at where you are right now. Yeah. So, look, I think that, as you say, we've made incredible progress. We got here 160 days ago. One percent of Americans were fully vaccinated. Uh, Today, we're getting close to that 70 percent target and we're getting close to our target of 160 million Americans fully vaccinated. So a lot of progress that, frankly, was we were not on track to do as a country before we came and changed the vaccination program and implemented the program we have. I think by July 4th, we'll probably be at 67, 68% of all adults vaccinated. So where we're a little behind our goal is with people under 30, and obviously particularly people 18 to 25. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the group that's been most reluctant to get vaccinated. You know, we're, we're at 88% vaccinated nationwide among people over 65. And so we've got a big age gap problem. Now, uh, you know, unfortunately, the Delta variant is starting to hit younger people, and uh, that's tragic, uh, but also maybe a reminder of them that they are not invincible and they need to get vaccinated. So we're going to continue to work to reach out to those younger Americans. 
And, you know, I think we will hit that 70% of 18 and over mark sometime in July. We'll hit that 160 million fully vaccinated sometime in mid-July. So we're a couple of weeks behind on hitting those targets, but we are going to hit them. And we're going to keep going from there. So you said there's no Republican versus Democratic difference when it comes to tackling the virus, but there are Republican governors like Ron DeSantis of Florida and Greg Abbott of Texas who are busy signing laws and issuing orders that prevent employers and schools from requiring proof of vaccinations, for example. So how can you drive the vaccination without the support of the red states? Well, look, I think we continue to work with all the states. And I would say, on the other hand, we have Republican governors like Asa Hutchison in Arkansas who has been a great partner in this and is working very hard to get people vaccinated. Uh, Mike DeWine in Ohio, Mm -hmm. another Republican governor that is working very hard to do it. So, uh, and in the end, right, we have 80,000 nationwide vaccination sites. 90% of Americans live within five miles of one. Uh, So we're going to continue to make the case for why this is so important to try to get as much of the country vaccinated as possible. But unfortunately, look, it is a fact that where vaccination rates are low, that is largely among young people. It's also a lot concentrated in rural areas. We're going to see the Delta variant spread. We're going to see more people get sick. We're going to see more people get to the hospital. That's tragedy. It's a preventable tragedy. We're going to do everything we can to prevent it. We're not going to give up. Uh, we're going to keep fighting to get more and more people vaccinated. So you mentioned the Delta variant. It becomes the dominant strain in the U.S. within a couple of weeks, many doctors say. If this happens, will the administration reissue mask guidelines? Right now, and I think our medical experts feel very strongly about this, Dr. Fauci in particular, believes that we do not need people to mask if they're vaccinated with the kind of vaccines we use in America. Uh, There's some other vaccines used worldwide that are not as effective against the Delta variant. But at this time, I don't think there's any reason to think that the masking guidance will change. If you're not vaccinated, though, by the way, the masking guidance hasn't changed on this either. If you were not vaccinated, you should be wearing a mask. But L.A. County recently recommended masks indoors, even if vaccinated. Israel reinstated mask restrictions. Australia, Bangladesh, Malaysia, all in lockdown. So is it a worry that you have? But again, some of these countries don't use the same vaccines we use. I have tremendous confidence in Dr. Fauci's leadership, in particular, Dr. Walensky as well. But I've known Dr. Fauci back from the Ebola response. We work together every single day on that. And so uh, his guidance, his leadership as the president's chief medical advisor is going to drive our response. And uh, we're going to follow his lead. Okay. Whether it's vaccines or masks, there's a lot of medical misinformation on social media platforms. For example, posts on Facebook and Twitter deny COVID exists, falsely linking vaccines to deaths. Should the platforms be held liable for this misinformation or for not removing the specific time? You're a tech person. How do you look at this? Look, I think the platforms need to do better. I think particularly Facebook needs to do better. And I need to give them some credit in the, in the sense that there's a lot of accurate information on Facebook. I think Facebook itself has built a number of tools to help people find vaccines and so on and so forth. But uh, I've told Mark Zuckerberg directly that when we gather groups of people uh, who are not vaccinated and we ask them, uh, why aren't you vaccinated? And they tell us things that are wrong, tell us things that are untrue. And we ask them where they've heard that. The most common answer is Facebook. And so we know it has become a giant source of misinformation and disinformation about the vaccines. So I, I am worried about this problem of misinformation, disinformation, driving vaccine hesitancy in our country. Uh, And of course, in other countries too. When's the last time you spoke to Mark Zuckerberg about an issue like this? We we talked, I think, about a a month ago or so. I don't remember the exact date, but maybe maybe in, in May about this issue, about what we need to do to try to make sure 
that people on all the platforms, and you know, Facebook, as you know better than anyone else, is the largest one, the most influential one, are getting information that's steering them towards getting vaccinated, not steering them away from it. Did you ask him to do that? What was his response? I did. His response was he cited the efforts that Facebook was undertaking to try to put out good information. And I, I, I told him, I think that uh, I recognize that Facebook is a source of a lot of good information about vaccines. There's no question about that. But it also, unfortunately, is a source of a lot of bad information about vaccines. And um, he responded by talking about the challenges of suppressing information on Facebook and how he's trying to, to manage that. I'll let, I'll let, obviously, Mark Zuckerberg speak for himself. He certainly can. But I think that, um, you know, there is just no question that a lot of misinformation about the vaccines is coming from postings on Facebook. And this is a life or death situation here. And it's it's pretty straightforward, right? Billions of these doses have been given around the world, very few adverse effects. The consequences of not being vaccinated is much more severe than any side effects you get from the vaccine. It is proven safe. It is free. It is widely available. There's no waiting. And we have to make sure that... Uh, Everyone is trying to get out the information that gives people the true, honest case for vaccination. Well, I don't know if anyone told you, Ron, but you're the government. Do you think we should move to regulate companies like Facebook around issues like this? I don't know. I mean, I think that that's a policy decision that, um, you know, I'll let the uh, administration work through. I think that right now the reality is Facebook has a responsibility. All the platforms, I don't want to single out Facebook, but it is the largest one. But, you know, all the platforms have a responsibility to try to help make sure people aren't making bad choices based on bad information. Do you have any thoughts on Facebook dodging the antitrust cases this week from the FTC and the state's attorneys general? Well, I, I need to be very careful there because the FTC has 30 days to decide if they're going to appeal or not or what their next legal steps are. And so I don't want to you know, get in the middle of what the FTC needs to decide here. Okay. I have one final question about the economy. It's a critical indicator, as you said, for and a major predictor of elections and if things are going well and things are growing. The May jobs report was underwhelming. Businesses are struggling to hire workers, something Republicans are blaming on COVID relief bill and its unemployment benefits. How do you look at the overall economy? What does it look like coming out of COVID? Well, I, I see a booming economy is what I see. I see over 2 million new jobs. I see that consumer confidence, which came out today, is at a post-pandemic high. Unemployment rates coming down. The growth rate in the first quarter was the fastest in 40 years uh, in our country. More people say that there's an adequate number of jobs than had said that any time since the year 2000, a 21-year high. So, you know, the president said last week, if employers are having trouble hiring people, they should pay them more. And um, obviously, we're seeing various kinds of bumps that you get when you restart the economy, the surge in prices of lumber, which has come back down, a shortage of supply of semiconductors, which I think is starting to get rectified. It was a big thing to shut down the largest economy in the world. And now we're trying to get it started again. All right. What do you think the greatest challenge lying ahead? What keeps you up at night? Well, everything. I guess when you're White House Chief of Staff, everything keeps you up at night. Yeah. Yeah. So look, I just think we need to continue to have success on the things we're doing. And just continue to make progress on our agenda. That's that's my goal. There's nothing specific. Look, I think all these you seem things to, do. you seem to stay up at night. You're quite a social media user yourself, Ron. You tweet a lot more than most senior White House officials. So you are up at night. 
So, and, and on Twitter. Yes, I am, Skira. I am up at night. I'm up late at night and early in the morning. That is true. Why do you spend so much time on Twitter? I'm just curious. How do you think about that? Why are you up on Twitter so much? I don't think, look, I, I, I enjoy Twitter. Uh, it's a, you know, when I have a meeting that ends or get home or get up in the morning, it's a fun thing for me to check to see what people are saying. Uh, and Biden campaign would say Twitter's not America. Twitter is not America. But I do think uh, it tells you where certain people's opinions are, what issues are front and center for some people, at least. And it's also a platform for us to try to get our message out. I also hope it gives some people a little bit of a window to what we're working on, what we're focused on. It's just a way to communicate with people. And, um, you know, I I guess I just enjoy it. Everyone needs a hobby. I guess that's That's my hobby. hobby. You dunk pretty well. I've noticed some good dunking that goes on uh, by you, which is unusual because most people in that administration are quite controlled in how they deal on Twitter, but it's it's enjoyable. Well, I hope I'm controlled in how I do on Twitter, Kara. Just... You're, you're no Marjorie Taylor Greene, but that's okay. That's an okay thing. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, Ron, I really appreciate you taking so much time. I appreciate you doing it. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Raza. Blakeney Schick, Hiba Elorbani, Matt Kwonk, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naima Raza and Paula Schumann. With original music and mixing by Isaac Jones and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Michelle Harris. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Liriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with an infrastructure bill endorsed by Kevin McCarthy and Nancy Pelosi, just kidding, this podcast is real, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow our show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.